0: In this episode of Critical Psychiatry Talks, we welcome Sandra Steingard. She was until recently the Chief Medical Officer of a Community Mental Health Team in Vermont, United States of America. She describes her own experiences of becoming more critical. She also explained the influence of Robert Whitaker's book Mad in America. In part one of the talk, she provides an overview of the major critiques of modern psychiatry. These include flaws within its diagnostic system, conflicts of interests and minimization of people with experiences of mental health difficulties. In part two, she describes the influence of Joanna Moncrief's drug-centered approach. In this approach, drugs are seen not to correct an underlying disease process, but as having psychoactive effects. These effects could be seen as positive or negative, but it's an important distinction about how drugs really work within mental health problems. In part three of the talk, she describes needs-adapted treatment. In this part, she explains the influence of open dialogue, which is an alternative approach that was developed in Finland. And currently, there's an ongoing trial called the Odyssey Trial, in which this approach has been studied in more detail. And lastly, in part four, she describes potential reforms to psychiatry. She explains that her own idea now is to promote a more slow psychiatry. In this case, we would restrict who we could be seeing, And by doing this, we would enable more time to understand people's difficulties. And this is in contrast to what's currently the system, which she describes as more of a fast approach in which mental health problems are seen as growing. And there's emphasis on activity. And she mentions particularly in America, there are parts where people are seen in only 15 minute appointments by psychiatrists. Thank you very much for the speaker for agreeing to talk to the group and I hope you enjoy this talk.
1: Reflections from a critical psychiatrist. So one thing, and I won't go into it too much, it may come up, is that I would, I would not say I was a biological psychiatrist until anatomy just because I never really accepted that term. And in some ways, in retrospect, I would say I've become, I was critical at multiple junctures of my career as I went into one area and became disappointed. So I've just had kind of a slow frequent recurring breakup with the profession which i'm happy to talk about if it's of interest but today what i'm going to talk about is some of these reflections and this talk is structured hopefully it'll get everyone off to like their other assignments there's time for talk but hopefully i'll finish up in time that you can go but i can give mark has the slides and i'm happy to share them with you so i'm going to give an overview of some highlights of uh the critiques of modern psychiatry in part one. And then in part two, I'm gonna talk about the drug-centered model, which is Joanna Moncrief's model. She's had a big influence on me and why I think that's very important. And then I'm gonna talk about need-adapted treatment. And finally, my, my big idea is integrating these as a way to have more integrity, I think, in the way that we practice. I've been told in talks, it's good to like say what your conclusion is at the beginning and then you say it again. And um, I borrowed this term slow psychiatry actually from another person across the pond, David Healy is the first place where I saw it. And the idea is, um, this concept is analogous to the slow food movement, the idea that that was a counter to industrial agriculture that valued production above all else and talked about the importance of food for the environment and the experience and the cultural significance. And I would say the things that I'm talking about and many, many others is a pushback to what I would call industrial psychiatry. And, you know, the idea, the idea is that not all human distress requires me- medical attention you know What's happened is a production model of psychiatry, frequent visits, they're very short. In some models in the U.S., the psychiatrist doesn't even meet with the person. And outcome, one measure of outcome is is quantity, production, how many people you've seen. And the concept that I'm pushing on is to restrict our purview, that I think there might be an actually enough psychiatrists if we weren't spread so thin and seeing so many people. But when we get involved, I think the questions that we're being asked to address are pretty complex and take some time. So, what are the major? I call this "What is Water." This comes from, um, I mean, it's an old story, but I heard it in a lecture. Da- da- by David
0: Foster Wallace.
1: Thank you, David Foster Wallace. I highly recommend it. Gave a talk to graduating seniors at a university, and you know, told the story of a couple yeah. of young fish are swimming by, and an old fish. Uh, sees them and says how's the water boys and they say what is water and I think we have a what is water problem that we're swimming in this <laughs> in these waters that we haven't examined so I'm going to highlight just a few the flawed diagnostic system conflicts of interest and the minimization of the voice and participation of those with lived experience I mean we're talking a little bit about the issue of of drug withdrawal from antidepressants and I think that under Emphasis on that is a classic example of why it's hazardous to ignore the voices of people who were treating I'm going to start with sort of a construct of what is modern psychiatry and again This is I'm in the United States I mean, I'm in the only decent state in the United States, but still I'm in the United States So this is a very US centric perspective. But anyway, we categorize experiences as illnesses or disorders We specialize in prescribing psychoactive drugs to treat those conditions. We focus on outcomes, rating scales, treatment algorithms. Now, people have and will seek out drugs to alter their state and their mental state mood. I mean, I'm actually not anti-drug. It's some of the people that kind of get drawn to some of my writings are thinking I want to go back to an era of psychiatry that in the US dominated in the 50s and 60s. And that's not really true. I actually think it's very, very important to think about these drugs. And I think Mark Horowitz is a great example of someone who has a very sophisticated understanding of what these drugs do. And I think psychiatry is as good a field as any to be experts on psychoactive, you know, psychoactive drugs and how they work. It's just a difference in how one thinks about them. Now, I think it's important to highlight certain relevant history to understand how we landed where we are today. So many psychoactive drugs were synthesized in the 50s and 60s, and that led to modern psychopharmacology. In the U.S. in 1962, there was an amendment to this U.S. Food and Drug Act. It was a response to thalidomide, which, as you all know, had a much bigger effect in the UK. We we were fortunate in the US that someone did recognize its harms before it was widely used. But in response, that there was an amendment to this act that required, in order to get a drug approved, the drug maker needed to demonstrate that it was specific. It was effective for a specific condition, and I think this is a case of something that was well intended at the time that had unintended consequences that I'll highlight. Another thing going on at the time is that there was an increased recreational use of drugs in the 60s and 70s, and I think in a lot of Western countries, and that led to psychiatry, which during the same time was having this big explosion, in their use of their drugs is to distinguish between good drugs and bad drugs. There was the growth you know, in the 80s of neoliberalism, which reduced the welfare state, and this led to a push to have everybody working efficiently. At the same time, some of the changes in psychiatry had to do with countering some moral arguments, the idea that mental illness is a sign of weakness, that bad moms were the cause of it. And so the talk about bad brains, broken brains, was, I think, again, a good intention to reduce stigma and to walk away from those other arguments. And I would propose that there's other alternatives, but but this was happening. And then and I think this is true in the UK, but psychoanalysis came to dominate psychiatry in the US after World War II with an influx of a lot of European psychiatrists. And there was a backlash against that to the biological descriptive psychiatry. And that really culminated in the publication of the DSM, which I assume you all know. It's an American Psychiatric Association publication, but I think it's had an outsized influence. And that was published in the 80s. That was actually as I was entering into psychiatry. Now, another concept I want to introduce to talk about this is something called economies of influence. And this was proposed by a Harvard Law School professor, Lawrence Lessig. And it's a model for understanding institutional corruption. And what it does is to address influences that act on institutions, that have them deviate from their stated mission. And in psychiatry, I think these influences have led to an increase in the medicalization of human distress, an increase in thinking about problems as chronic and thinking about problems as requiring drug treatments. And this whole model has been written about extensively in a book called Psychiatry Under the Influence by Lisa Cosgrove and uh, Robert Whitaker that was published in 2015 that I think is quite interesting. And again, I think has implications beyond the United States. So what happened? Like all of these things came together. What do you see? Well, what you see is broaden drug targets and you know an advantage to being old is that i lived through a lot of this so antipsychotic drugs when i came into the business and i should say early on i wanted to be a psychoanalyst i kind of fell off the couch and became disenchanted with that and then i became very interested in psychosis and i think that's why given that i would be called considered at that point a biological psychiatrist even though i never accepted that but you know, when I entered into this, which was in the late 80s, the keystone treatment for something that we call schizophrenia was antipsychotic drugs. And the antipsychotic drugs at the time were primarily used for people who uh, got that diagnosis. And it was kind of frowned upon to use them outside of that with the introduction of the newer drugs that all went by the wayside. And I think that was largely driven by commercial interests. So the use in mania, which they were used in a limited way for mania, but now they're used for the whole syndrome of bipolar disorder, which has gotten quite broad in its definition. And so mood stabilization and um, the prevention of relapse to depression. And then, you know, in some ways using for insomnia and anxiety. So you, I've witnessed a constriction of their use, and then a broadening of use, which I would say was largely driven by commercial interest. And the psychostimulants is something I've been fascinated by in the past 15 years, because I've watched as they've been expanded again because of commercial interest. So if you go back to the 50s, you'll see ads for uh, psychostimulants to help Housewives, I like to joke that I have so many indications for why I should be on a stimulant, I'm amazed that I haven't been like tackled down and given one, I guess it's because I'm so inattentive. But anyway, so they were used for health with housewives and then children with cognitive challenges, which then became called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And then what I saw in the 2000s was their expansion to adults. So it was was considered, ADHD was considered a developmental problem. And now, lo and behold, it's a chronic problem. And then you'll see it's being used for a new disorder called binge eating disorder, mild cognitive impairment after menopause and depression, which, you know, we, this isn't new news, but what changed? Well, as the SSRIs went off patent, there were new forms of the stimulants in the United, States. it's Liz Desmes, I'm gonna get this wrong, it's called Vyvanse. Mark, you want to help me here? Was this methamphetamine, something like that anyway. Um, and that's, you know, these, they're really new formulations that allow it to not be tampered and shot up. But because it was, it was a market there, you saw a lot of expansion in their use with not a lot of attention to why these drugs have some pretty significant problems. The other thing that I think you see, which I think is a part of all this like institutional problems is what I would call recovery chronicity paradox. So on the one hand, there's the narrative of great advances in neuroscience and drug development and psychiatric therapeutics. But on the other hand, there's a shift to conceptualizing most mental disorders as chronic. And um, so the result is that there's an expansion in their promotion and use over a long period of time. This isn't just an example of how recovery is discounted. So as you probably all know, Emil Kreplin coined the term dementia praecox, and this was in its definition defined as a chronic deteriorating condition, which was instantiated in the DSM diagnosis. Now there's a fair amount of disorder that if you look at people who get labeled with schizophrenia early on, many of them do not go on to have chronic conditions some do but many don't and um i like to cite the vermont study because i'm from vermont it's one of the big studies where they went and looked at people 25 years after their entry in the 50s it was when chlorpromazine was introduced to the hospital and the people that didn't respond entered into the study and 25 years later 70 percent were recovered and that data which came out in the 80s was largely discounted or ignored. So there's almost an active ignoring of data that, that counters this uh, you know, chronicity narrative. The other question, you know, as I said early on, that some of these ideas were promoted to reduce stigma. But I think there's at least some evidence, some of the middle study, at least as Longden and Reed comes from the UK, that in fact, this medical narrative doesn't reduce stigma. So these are three studies, increasing belief in the biomedical model, increased the desire to maintain social distance, psychosocial explanations reduce stigma, increased empathy, and that patients who are not stigmatized have better overall outcomes, self-efficacy, quality of life, improved chances of recovery. And I highlighted self-efficacy because I've come to believe that that quality Is very important for people to get better, and that the more we can, as helpers and carers, doctors, increase self efficacy, I think the more that we will be helping people. So that kind of ends my intro. I mean, obviously, I just covered something that could take a lot of time, but are sort of highlights to kind of give you a sense of how I'm thinking about things. And I don't know whether it's useful for this group to maybe stop and answer a couple of questions. I mean,
0: I think if you're open to questions, if anyone has any questions, they can jump in. I I was very interested in in your point about Lawrence Lessig's idea of institutional corruption. Is that something you're going to expand on? um, No, um,
1: I mean, what I can say is with corruption, there's a tendency to look for the bad apples. And one of the things that he said is it's not about looking for bad apples, it's looking for a bad barrel. And so let's say with commercialization. So in the United States, in then I think it was around 2008, Senator Grassley, he's from Iowa, he's actually a pretty conservative senator, had these hearings and they uncovered the millions of dollars that certain psychiatrists got from drug companies, um, one of whom is a guy named Joe Biederman, who's at Mass General Hospital, who's kind of single-handedly created the whole bipolar in children thing and led to a lot of kids being medicated. And he uncovered this. So you could choose to look at those psychiatrists that were acted in a particularly egregious way. Although I have to say nothing bad happened to Joe Biederman. He's still at Harvard Medical School and still considers himself kind of, he had some quote that like there's a Harvard professor of medicine and then there's God, something. I'm, I'm getting it wrong. I'm yeah. very bad at wow. quoting things. There's a guy named Charles Nemeroff who equally was targeted in that and is still going off now, ironically talking about childhood trauma. But but what they're saying is good people may act in ways that do not favor the the institutional mission. And I think it's a helpful thing because when you point at people and you don't look at structural problems, you may be missing it. And, you know, in the United States and I know elsewhere, we're having a huge conversation about structural issues that, that keep racism going, and and that if you talk about an individual being a racist, people get defensive, and you don't look at the structural problems. So, I mean, I think it's all very much in keeping with that larger conversation that we're having right now.
0: Okay, That's very interesting.
1: Yeah. So, the second part is really, it's an homage to Joanna Moncrief, because I'm really, these are her ideas, and I'm going to really talk about the disease versus drug center model. But then what I'm going to do is talk about how that has shaped my way of thinking about it, like how I've applied that in, in my own way of thinking about it. And I have to say that it took a lot of work for me, particularly with regard to the antipsychotic drugs to get to this point. It wasn't that hard for me to think about this when I talked about benzodiazepines. And I think when you talk about drugs that are abused, it's a lot easier to kind of see this or conceptualize it. So basically, you know, what she points out is that in a disease-centered approach, you talk about drugs correcting an abnormal brain chemistry and that the effects of the drugs are derived from their effect on a presumed disease process. So because I'm going to talk about antipsychotics, the idea is that there's some abnormality in the dopamine transmission that these drugs are correcting because we know that these drugs block dopamine transmission. But a drug-centered approach would say that these drugs are fundamentally psychoactive substances and that they create an abnormal brain state. They're perturbing the brain and that they alter the expression by psychiatric problems through the superimposition of drug effects. So that's, I think that's really an important distinction. And so how does that play out with antipsychotic drugs, so a brief history. They were synthesized in the 50s. They were first used in surgery because they dry secretions, and the French psychiatrist Labarit probably just butchered his name. In In Vermont, we were settled by uh, the Quebecois, so there's a lot of French names that we've completely Anglicized, so our capital is Montpelier. It's Montpellier, you know, so anyway, I'm, I have a good reason for butchering French. But anyway, what he observed is that they cause indifference. And that was the big thing, that that the tranquilizers, other tranquilizers just knocked people out. And what these drugs did is that people were awake, but it caused a state of psychological indifference. And he thought that that might be useful for people who were in mental hospitals at the time. Now, that was his original observation. And in a, a, I mentioned Charles Nemeroff, who was you know a very prominent psychiatrist who got very, very rich from the drug companies and edited this you know, well-regarded textbook. And if you go into that book, it talks about what these drugs do in normal volunteers. And that's what the drug-centered approach is. What do they do in someone who doesn't have a mental disorder? And what they talk about is they induce feelings of dysphoria, paralysis of volition and fatigue. So I highlighted self-efficacy before, and now I'm highlighting paralysis of volition. And the question from a drug-centered point of view is what does it mean to give someone a drug that causes indifference and paralysis of volition over not just weeks, but months and decades? So the current treatment standards are, at least in the US, is to initiate drug treatment early, And this is due to a hypothesis that's been around for now almost three decades that antipsychotic drugs prevent further disease progression, that you continue them indefinitely because there is good data that stopping them does lead to relapse. So relapse prevention is the preeminent goal. And that if you see poor outcomes people not working, poor social performance, let's say, that that's due to this dementia praecox that uh, Kreplin identified many years ago. I would say that there are recent findings, and again, there's a lot more I could say on this, and and if people want, we could talk about it, but there are some recent findings on long-term outcomes with schizophrenia, and those findings seem paradoxical from a disease-centered orientation, but I would say are predicted by a drug-centered orientation. So I'm going to talk about the dering study, which is from the Netherlands. And this was a study of uh, remitted people with first episode psychosis, who what he did was he did an initial study of people using intermittent antipsychotics. And these studies had been done before. It was a two-year study. So he took 128 people with first episode psychosis and stabilized on drug for six months and then randomized. And one group went off of them. And I've, I've asked him about this. They did not do a taper. It was like they came off the way the clinician wanted them to come off. So it was pretty rapid. And in one group, they would just go on them if they developed psychosis, the other stayed on them. And at the end of two years, he found the same thing that had been found in other studies, that there was a higher relapse rate in the group that was on the drug intermittently. And so he could have said, you know, done, we're done, we've shown that people need to be on them long term. But he decided to track these people seven years later, was able to find 103 of them and what he found is that at seven years, the relapse rates between the two groups are similar. What it looked like is that you you captured a lot of the relapse in the you know the drug discontinuation group early on, and then the graphs plateaued and were somewhat similar, but the recovery rates at seven years were dramatically different. And this was a randomized control study. Although after two years they went off and did whatever they were going to do, but at seven years the group initially randomized to drug discontinuation had a 40% recovery rate as compared to the maintenance group. And he looked at both symptomatic and functional recovery. The symptomatic recovery had to do with no voices, no delusions, that kind of thing. The functional recovery had to do with having friends and working. And basically the difference, there was about a 70% symptomatic recovery in both groups they were quite similar but the difference was in the functional recovery so that's a very interesting finding i think i'm going to come back to that in a second but the other data and i'm going to come back to open dialogue in a minute this is data from their work but for the purposes here in northern finland where they practice this they do not believe that everybody needs to be on drugs and they don't believe everyone needs to be on them long term. So they try to avoid using them. And when they use them, they take people off. And they've done these five-year outcome studies and found that the rates of disability are very low as compared to this is, these aren't randomized control studies. It's, it's They're comparing them to another cohort in Stockholm where they had sort of standard treatment. You can see that the use of antipsychotics at all is only 30, about 30% in the open dialogue group as opposed to 90% in Stockholm At follow up only 17% are on drug, as opposed to 75% in Stockholm. So the Stockholm group is using drugs the way most people in the West are using them and yet they have a much higher rate of people on disability. So in both Wunderink and in, in Northern Finland, you're seeing these outcomes that suggest that the long-term outcome with people maintained on antipsychotic drugs are not very good. And in vundering it seems to be accounted for by functional impairment. So how do you understand that from a disease-centered point of view or a drug-centered point of view? So in the disease-centered point of view, the you know the the relapses are accounted for by the uh, recurrence of the underlying illness you know, that we know to be chronic. And the long-term apathy is due to this underlying illness that we know is associated with underlying apathy. I mean, this is what we've known in our field for decades. But if you look at it from the lens of a drug-centered point of view, what you're saying is that you're giving a drug that induces indifference. Now, that indifference may be really, really helpful. I mean, I've just retired from a long career of treating psychotic people, and I know well how dangerous and disruptive psychosis can be and I think that these drugs are needed. I mean, I have forced people onto these drugs, and I force people into hospitals so i 'm not living in some alternative u- universe where I choose my patients. I was in the public sector, so I get that part, and I think they may be useful, however. When the drugs are stopped, I think we need to think about more than just the recurrence of the underlying condition, that we know, and Mark Karowitz is here, he talks a lot about this, that something changes. We're getting supersensitivity. Supersensitivity has been well described since the 80s. And so it's a different brain, and there may be something else going on when people relapse and we may be able to think about withdrawing these drugs in a very different way that we've not even begun really to scratch the surface of thinking about. So we do want to think about withdrawal effects. And we also might think about at least some component of the poor social functioning being related to the fact that these are drugs that fundamentally induce indifference. So that's a really practical, for me, like compelling, important reason for why thinking about these drugs in a drug center way may really be important. So that's part two. I think we really need to think about these drugs in a drug-centered way. And I'll tell you, I've had interesting conversations with psychiatrists who I'm very aligned with who say, you know what? I don't like using the word drugs. They're medications. And the whole reason why I use drugs is because a lot of uh, people who've lived experience have said, don't use them as <laughs> medications. You don't know what you're medicating. You don't know enough. But people are uncomfortable with that. And I think that any psychiatrist that's... An, uncomfortable with using the word drug really needs to do a little self-reflection because I think that's such an interesting comment that we're uncomfortable and I think it has to do with the fact that we don't like thinking about the fact that we're giving people psychoactive drugs. Anyway, how do you do this? How do you talk about these drugs if you don't want to emphasize Diagnosis, because you think diagnosis is faulty. I think you know, the notion of schizophrenia is a faulty notion. I mean, I, I, I think psychosis or altered states or whatever exists. I'm not denying it, but I think it's so problematic. And what can we do? How can we promote agency, which I think is really important? And my idea is to integrate the drug-centered approach with need-adapted treatment. Open dialogue, I've already alluded to, is a subtype of a larger kind of approach called need adapted to treatment. So I'll say a little bit about this. I mean, part of what's happening for me since I read Anatomy of an Epidemic is that I've been studying this. And if we have time, I'll talk. the very last part talks about what I've been doing, which I'm only going to go to if we have time and it's of interest. But anyway, they developed this in Finland. And the whole idea was to say this was the time when they were deinstitutionalizing as we were here, as I assume you were in the UK. And there was a psychiatrist who said, you know, there's a lot of different, in the 80s, things were more open, particularly in Europe. You know, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about psychosis. There are biological models, psychological models, family, social, and they each came with their own approach and they each seemed to help some people some of the time. It was very hard to know how to match which idea with which person. So what they decided is to bring the families and the person at the center of concern and say just that, like to share that dilemma with them. And what happened to their surprise is that those conversations seemed to be of value, that that seemed to lead to some switch, that seemed to lead to some improvement. And so they began to study the nature of those kinds of conversations. And, and they develop this approach, this idea. This idea of need-adaptive treatment is that it acknowledges the value of different paradigms. It has a value of uncertainty. We don't know. Humility is embedded into the way they work. It's flexible and democratic. It respects different points of view and less hierarchical. So the psychiatrist isn't the only source of knowledge. It's a source of knowledge. And this is a way of working. So to contrast open dialogue need adapted treatment standard treatment and i'll just will say i know they're not the only ones who do that i think there's a lot of other approaches that share these values this happens to be the one that i've been studying the most but i think it's the values that are important but the ideas that the needs of the system and by system i'm meaning the family network they meet with families that's what drives the treatment whereas i would say in the standard medical model the diagnosis drives the treatment. There's a book that just came out by one of your colleagues on the medical model and its advantages. And I have not read it yet. I've read a lot about it and a lot of conversations on Twitter. I actually value this, the medical model. If you saw the way I work, I like thinking systematically. And so the medical model has helped me to organize my thinking, but it has a certain place and it, And I think if it's kept in a certain place, it can be a useful tool. So I'm not, again, anti that, but I I don't like it when it takes over the entire system. It's colonized a lot of areas of life, and I think that's where it's problematic. So I do believe in the medical model, the diagnosis drives the treatment. Open dialogue, need-adaptive treatment is more longitudinal. They emphasize continuity, whereas at least where I work, very crisis intervention. Someone comes in with psychosis, from the time that person tells the first person that they're hearing voices till they land with some team that they might work with over time, they may have to tell their story to a lot of different people. And so the whole open dialogue system was developed to counter that, to sort of have some continuity. They work with the social network. So the first question would be, who would be important to understanding this problem? I think this is a very family-friendly way of working, and it's interesting that it gets some pushback from some elements who think that this way of working is not helping because it's anti-drug. It's not really anti-drug. It's putting drug in, I think, a place it belongs. Standard treatment really focuses on the individual tolerance of uncertainty. I've talked about And in standard treatment, the expert holds the epistemic authority. You go to a doctor or a mental health professional to find out what the problem is. And then they then explain it to you in a psychoeducational way. And there's a pre-existing menu of services that are tied to the particular diagnosis you're given. Whereas in, in dialogic practice, as practice in open dialogue, There's a lot of flexibility and and uncertainty. We don't know how to best understand this. I mean, I think it's absurd. In the U.S., you talk to someone for 15 minutes, you have to give them a diagnosis. And I'll tell you, once it's out of the bag, it has a lot of impact on people that's not always Mm -hmm. examined. They're mobile. They go to where the people are. It's a very person, family-friendly way of working. They value hospitality. It's it's really quite beautiful when, when you learn about it. Um, In open dialogue, the person has agency and voice. The experiences are thought to have meaning, or at least you're open to being curious about meaning. And standard treatment, the person's the object of the therapeutic action and experiences are considered primarily symptoms. I want to get to this conclusion, which is like, what, why? Like, how do I pull all this together? And I mean, really the idea, like if you take a drug-centered approach, it really, for me, it was illuminating. Like I was so struggling because I was going into work and I still found these drugs useful in a certain way. I mean, I think I've always been pretty conservative. It did shift how I use them to some extent, but I was having a hard time making sense of it until I, you know, started to read Joanna Moncrief's work and I realized like using them in a drug-centered way made sense but then it involved having this shifting conversation with my patients who had taken in this notion of disease-centered notion and the need-adapted approach gave me a way to have these pretty complicated conversations and it really I think it embodied those values, a more humble way of talking, sharing, authority, not giving up my authority, but just putting it kind of in its place. And it, these things just sort of merged together into a way of working that just made so much sense to me and really is not, it's not anti-psychiatry. If anything, I think it's pro Psychiatry it gives a value to psychiatry within a frame. So I think I don't know this But I have this idea that maybe there's enough psychiatrists, but there's a distorted demand I mean, I can't tell you how many times I get questions and it's this person is depressed and you find out You know, it's not that hard to get put on antidepressants in the US. I mean, they are given out pretty freely and it's someone who's been on like 12 different drugs and they're still depressed and so they want to go to a psychiatrist to find the 13th that's going to like be the you know open the key and honestly i think like probably 10 drugs before someone could have said you know i know you're suffering i get that i don't think the suffering is going to be answered by a drug and let's go in another direction and don't have that taking up all the psychiatrists time you know what what's happened now is because of this demand you know many psychiatric practices run like a mill i think when we get involved the problems that we're talking about are complex i think it's pretty interesting and that you want to have the space to talk about the drugs in a drug centered way as tools and not cures you want to listen to what The meaning is for the person. I do think there's a fair amount of psychosis that's embedded in trauma. And I don't know that there's always a therapeutic cure to that, but at least sort of respecting it and the psychosis itself is traumatizing and giving people a place to talk about that, I think would be very humanizing and and helpful for people. And, you know, my final thing is this embracing humility and uncertainty as a core value of psychiatry.
0: Thank you Sandra for the interesting talk. We meet as trainees over Zoom and have rich discussions about these talks but we have cut this from this recording. If you're a trainee and would like to join this group to be part of these discussions, please drop us an email and the email address is below. We hope to see you again for the next episode. Thank you.